0: Hello there! This week, I thought I'd revisit a conversation that was first released two years ago, because it's still one of the most unusual places I've ever had the pleasure to learn more about. Alaska. I'll be back with a brand new episode next Friday. Stay tuned to the end for a little preview of that. But in the meantime, enjoy this classic episode with Mark Billingsley from the University of Alaska, Fairbanks. And hey, while I have your attention, if you've been enjoying the show and you wanted to keep going, please take a moment to spread the word among your colleagues or on social media. It really is the best way to make sure this podcast keeps growing and will be around for many more years. And if you post about it on LinkedIn, make sure to tag me. I'd love to hear what you've learned from the podcast. Thank you.
1: What happens is I'll have a startup that will try to raise money in state and they might be successful, but I would that they would be more successful if they were in California. And I'm just talking about at the angel round. And then when they get to a seed round or even a pre-seed round, there's no funding in Alaska. There's no opportunity. There's no capital available to them. So we're trying to fix that.
0: How do you do tech transfer when the US federal government's definition of rural communities covers your whole state? And rural to you means 30 people that live 200 miles away from the nearest road. That's the reality faced every day by Mark Billingsley, director of the University of Alaska Fairbanks' Tech Transfer Office and Innovation Hub. Mark joined the profession in 2015, after first working as an engineer and then holding various legal positions, including assistant public defender. And thankfully for Mark, Alaskans are an entrepreneurial culture. And while it is also a culture that is yet to fully embrace innovation, Alaska's remoteness means startups and founders are much more resilient than they might be in the lower 48 states. My name is Thierry Hillis. Let's look beyond the breakthrough. Mark, welcome to the podcast.
1: This is great. Thank you so much
0: for having me. I'm excited. It's a real pleasure to have you. To start with, can you give me an overview of University of Alaska's tech transfer operation and if you have them, some key figures perhaps?
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, So... I am here in Fairbanks, Alaska. It's the northernmost city of its size in the world. So we're pretty far north, a couple hours from the Arctic Circle. So as you might imagine, we do a lot of Arctic research. That's sort of UAF's thing. We got $140 million in research expenditures approximately per year. We're pretty far away from everything. (laughs) (laughs) The tech transfer office, it was Started around 10 years ago and then it had a real rebirth around five years ago. Some basic stats. We've got about 30 disclosures per year. I'm actually a patent attorney and I've got another patent attorney working for me in my office. We are the only two practicing patent attorneys in the state of Alaska, actually. Wow. And still we outsource, you know, most of it. And we've got other support staff as well. But importantly, we've also, so I'm the director of the tech transfer office as well as the innovation hub, the other Innovation, entrepreneurial activities at the university. And the rebirth that occurred around five years ago was really focused on increasing the quantity and quality of disclosures coming into the tech transfer office. So going upstream and helping orient researchers toward producing more commercializable innovations, and also helping open faculty, staff, and students' eyes to opportunities as entrepreneurs and starting their own companies.
0: Is that something that you find is already present as a culture, this entrepreneurship being so remote and kind of frontier city?
1: Interesting that many Alaskans say, and rightfully, that it's a very independent-minded community. And it's a very innovative community. You encounter problems that you better be self-sufficient in figuring out how to solve them. I mean, going back to this is a state that was founded 120 years ago on gold mining and people coming up here without the tools they needed and having to make their own tools and entrepreneurially coming up here trying to make some money. But we don't have a strong culture of innovation and entrepreneurialism in Alaska, I would say, especially relative to, I mean, our big sister, big brother right outside of here is Seattle, and it's booming. And then California is not much farther away. So relative to them is nothing. So I think I represent a few different things, rural, smaller offices, and underdeveloped innovation and entrepreneurial ecosystems, and underdeveloped not just that they're undeveloped, but that we're underdeveloped relative to our potential, because there is great potential here. We're just very consciously bringing that culture up here as much as I can.
0: You mentioned the rebirth already. What led to the rebirth? How exactly have things changed?
1: Yeah, so the rebirth partially was just prompted in a large turnover in staff and with no carryover of the institutional history. So it was out of necessity. But also, the office was initially opened with almost a very traditional perspective on tech transfer, purely licensing and disclosure churn. And that wasn't bad at all. But the longer term game here is to grow the number of quality and quantity of innovation so that we have even more to work on through the traditional licensing operations. And if anything, I feel like right now, we're on the upswing for sure with faculty, staff and students being more aware of this and producing more commercializable innovation. So now we need to swing back toward putting more effort into the traditional work.
0: Speaking of that awareness, you have an ambassador program. Can you tell me about how that works and the impact that it's had so far?
1: Yeah, so that was something that we did right at that rebirth period. It is more traditionally focused, but we call it our eyes, ears, and mouth in each college or research institute. It's typically faculty who we select two to three per year. They join us on a contract of usually a month, sometimes two months, sometimes two weeks. And they join us, really get to know what we're doing. Typically, they're people who we kind of know already, and they kind of know what we do. And for one year, they join all of our staff meetings and they usually have a pet project that they work on, but their more core job is to really just go out there and be eyes and ears, finding disclosures or finding people who are likely to be interested in our programs. And then our mouth also, you know, they go out there and they just promote now that they know what we're doing, they're promoting it. It's absolutely successful. First, those people then are intimately familiar with what we're doing. So, you know, three years, five years down the road, them or their grad students are already going to be lined up to work with us. And then, you know, there's a one year turnover. So it keeps on being a new person each time. And then, you know, it's that thing of we do have one faculty member who works half time permanently in our office, but this is that bridging the gap between a tech transfer office and the members of the actual faculty who are teaching and doing research. It's really bridging that gap. It's been great. It's been absolutely productive and effective.
0: Amazing. You hinted at one of the other jobs you have. You're also director of the Alaska Center for Innovation, Commercialization and Entrepreneurship. Can you tell me a little bit about that center and how it fits together with the tech transfer office? Sure,
1: yeah. So Center for Innovation, Commercialization and Entrepreneurship, the acronym comes out to CENTER ICE, which is somewhat Alaska fitting. Um, (laughs) CENTER ICE is our home For everything we do that isn't traditional core tech transfer, it's encouraging more innovation and entrepreneurialism and supporting all the way from ideation through commercialization success or launching your startup company and getting funding for that. We've got a number of grants that run through there. So I actually am the PI on multiple grants, constantly applying for new ones or making connections and networking in that regard which i'm not sure how common that is across the country i know some offices do it and some don't some of my peers do it not a lot it seems like that's a real model as tech transfer changes it seems like that's a model one of the models that could become increasingly common it creates some challenges cuz administratively people have a hard time thinking about wait tech transfer office has grants how does that make sense how does that work but it's really the associated services that we offer that have the grants to support them. We service faculty, staff, and students. And some of our grants even have us serving the general public in Alaska. We don't have any grants that serve outside of Alaska, but not that we couldn't.
0: How do you find time to do all the different jobs? If you're also one of the two only patent attorneys in Alaska, well, what does your day look like? <laughs> it's really long and I don't. So,
1: there's no- <laughs> yeah, so I am really grateful for the other patent attorney in my office. He is doing a great job. He's been with us for about a year and a half. He's learning really quickly. He's really smart. So I'm very grateful for him. I am spending a lot of my time still on that. You know, it's not just tech transfer licensing. It's also reviewing the IP terms and all of the contracts and helping with data sharing agreements, All everything kind of related to tech transfer that goes on there. So it's quite a bit of work. I do spend a lot of my time on grant management, budget, HR, personnel management issues, and it adds up to a lot. And I mean, that's a good question. And I don't have a great answer for one thing. It's a balance I'm still trying to achieve. But that's part of the natural growing pains. If you're growing and you've got it under perfect control at every moment, you're probably not growing as fast as you can. And sometimes the dynamics of growing quickly are exciting and they uncover new opportunities.
0: Yeah, I think that's very true. Something that's at the top of everyone's mind at the moment as well is diversity and inclusion. How does your engagement fare from researchers and your own staff when it comes to diversity?
1: Yeah, thanks. So we have really taken a proactive approach to try and improve our engagement for sure. Alaska's minority population is largely Alaska Natives, so we don't have, you know, a large Hispanic or Asian population. It's people who have been here for a whole lot longer than we have. And we are a minority serving institute. So we've got a few initiatives in that regard. We've got a program to help startups get access to federal funding, the SBIR-STTR grant program. Most people in the United States will know what that is. We've got SBIR-STTR support programs specifically targeting underrepresented population. We've got we're standing up a interior Alaska business accelerator, and we're giving preference to underrepresented groups. We're partnering with a K through 12 education that comes out of the university and really does a good job of reaching into the high schools, especially, and especially the high schools that largely serve underrepresented populations. And we're partnering with them. I won't lie, it's not easy. So I've asked a leader in this area, someone from another state, what do you consider the keys? And she had a few different answers. She said, measure where you're at in terms of underrepresented participation and keep track and make sure you're improving. Give folks from underrepresented communities a seat at the table when you're making high-level decisions and commit resources. It's not a secret. These are the things, in, but you actually have to do it. So we're doing that. And among our own ranks, it's always been pretty good in terms of Gender diversity, it's pretty much 50 50. We've had more female than male at times. I think right now we probably are more male than female. But then ethnic diversity, we have minority representation, but it could be stronger.
0: What does the student or faculty look like at University of Alaska? Is it mostly Alaskans? Do you attract many students or researchers from other states?
1: So it is largely Alaskan. It's a public land grant university. Largely Alaskans among the faculty and the graduate students. I wouldn't say that that's true. It's a lot of people and some undergraduate students as well. There's the allure of Alaska. So we're definitely attracting people who are just interested in, you know, the allure mystique of Alaska. But then when you get to the graduate students and the faculty, there's a lot of people who are here for Arctic related research. We're definitely attracting graduate students on a regular basis who are interested in something related Arctic science. So that attracts an international community. By some measure, UAF is the number one Arctic Research Institute in the world.
0: Wow. I suppose there aren't really many other places you could go for that. Maybe somewhere north in Sweden or Finland, but you're really you're kind of stuck for places to find if you're an Arctic researcher. Well, and it's becoming increasingly important, you know, with the global
1: warming and the shipping lanes opening up and natural resource development. But a lot of universities especially from the U.S. that want to perform Arctic research, which many of them do for varying reasons. They even just need to know how to get there. Obviously, take a flight, but performing research in the Arctic, there's a lot of challenges, cold, remote, dark, all kinds of challenges. And oftentimes, we're just sought out as a partner to figure out how to access that and perform science in the Arctic.
0: We've touched on my next question a few times over your answers. What are the challenges of commercialization? In Alaska,
1: we don't do a lot of research that is obviously commercially relevant. So commercializing that research is just more challenging. I've got to connect more dots. There's not a end user for most of my disclosures. And that's not so unusual, but I've got to connect maybe more dots than most people. We don't have that culture of innovation and entrepreneurialism quite yet. And we're trying to change that. And then. We don't have industry down the road who's looking to partner with us naturally. For so many reasons, if you're in a city and there's a big company or a big industry in the area, they want to create that partnership because they want the talent and they want you to be helping solve their research challenges. And there's just goodwill in the community. So they're trying to build that relationship. And when you don't have that next door, you don't have like sort of a natural industry partner that's going to lead to startups or innovations that are commercializable. So that's a real challenge.
0: Other than industry, how easy is it to find capital? Do you have VC firms knocking on your door? Well, other than Silicon Valley, that was probably knocking on anyone's door, but
1: Yeah, interesting you should ask that. I've really been working on that recently quite a bit or looking into that to directly answer your question. There is not a single VC firm in Alaska. Literally no venture capital in Alaska. And there's nobody who really has Alaska as a dedicated part of their portfolio, you know, like an outside firm in California or Seattle that says, you know, we're not located in Alaska, but we're going to have a venture partner in Alaska. There's just nothing like that. And we don't have a very angel investor community activity level looks like in rural middle America, but we certainly don't have the level of activity among our angel investors that you would find in Seattle or Oregon and in California, they're coming from a very different place. So, what happens is, oh, we'll have a startup that will try to raise money in state, and they might be successful. But I would posit that they would be more successful if they were in California. And I'm just talking about at the angel round. And then when they get to a seed round or even a pre-seed round, there's no funding in Alaska. There's no opportunity. There's no capital available to them. So we're trying to fix that. And as the startup ecosystem in Alaska improves, the opportunity really is greater. And as people get older and younger people move up, their perspectives are changing. There's a good case to be made right now for starting a very small venture capital firm in Alaska. I'm trying to see what people think about that, try to find somebody to champion that.
0: When the startups do go to California or Seattle to get money... Do you find that the expertise is there amongst the VCs to understand the technologies that they are working on? Because I imagine it's not just your software companies and your what you would find in San Francisco, basically.
1: Yeah, I don't think that that has held them back. A couple things. Our founders, they are resilient. I suppose they have to be. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that they would have given up a nine months earlier, if they were a lower 48 startup or two years earlier. So they're resilient, but they're not as savvy as CEOs. So that's one thing. There's a pro and a con there. But I wouldn't say that the investors are shying away or overly aggressive. There's not a real difference just because we're from Alaska, even in terms of the technology. I'd also say, though, that when we have startups in Alaska, Or that stay in Alaska or that go elsewhere. I think they have a higher rate of success because we're more risk averse. So if you've made it as far as you have to, you know, the lower 48 or two years on in Alaska, you're probably in pretty good shape because whoever's been supporting you or however far you've gotten, it's been despite the risk aversion that we see in our founders and our startup community and our investors. So you're more likely to be successful, it seems like. So when they do go to lower 48, it seems like they are more successful in terms of spinning up in the business and in raising capital.
0: I would probably call that an advantage of being in Alaska. Are there other advantages that you have compared to the lower 48? This is like
1: the coolest place in the world to live, <laughs> <laughs> which is a real selling point. We're trying to figure that out still with the great, well, not the great resignation, maybe part of that. With people moving to remote that we've seen people move up here from the lower 48 who are like, they can move anywhere now and they're like, well, I want to live in Alaska. So many people here, this is kind of one of those places where you don't get anywhere near it if you're not interested because you're like, that's cold and that's far away. But if you are interested in it, you probably love it. Or there's a good chance that you love it once you get it up here. I mean, the culture, the community is really pretty cool. So, that's a real advantage. There's various other advantages, our strategic geopolitical location relative to Asia we have our economics pencil out, sometimes sooner here than they do elsewhere for doing certain kinds of pilot projects, because it's so expensive, especially in rural Alaska. All of Alaska generally qualifies as rural under many the US federal definitions. But what we consider rural is, well, definitely off of the grid, the interconnected power grid, definitely off of the road system. And then there's communities that are 30 people large and they're 200 miles away from or 400 miles away from the nearest road or anything. So there's 200 of those. So very rural. So in those communities, the economics can be different. You know, it's very expensive to have electricity. So if you want to try out your new power generation technology, it's not going to be economically viable in Nebraska. They're already interconnected to the entire United States and much of Canada, but it might work out up here. So
0: There's some things like that. We've got a lot of natural resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're certainly selling Alaska. It's definitely it's a state that I've not been to yet. I think as far north that I've been is probably Sonoma Wine Country, which is still pretty far south from Alaska. But you're really making me want to come up and visit the state. I quite like the cold, so I think I would be quite at home in Fairbanks.
1: Oh, please
0: please come up. I'll give you a place to stay. What is your view of the US ecosystem more broadly outside of Alaska?
1: Yeah. So Tech transfer is really interesting right now, I would say. It's changing quickly from that traditional tech transfer model I was talking about before. And that's still a integral part of any future of tech transfer. But there's a lot of experimentation, it seems like, in terms of where the office should sit, what its economics should look like, and what they should be doing. I think it's interesting to think about From a leadership standpoint, the tech transfer office director, the vice president for research, the president of the university, and then even the community leaders, what they want the tech transfer office to be doing and how it could have the greatest impact. You know, it's no secret that some large percentage of tech transfer offices don't break even, but universities still want them because there's so much value they still add. But that's often been approached from a, but still how much money are you making perspective as people maybe come to terms with that and think more honestly about, all right, what's the greatest value we can get from, especially this really specialized group of people sitting in our tech transfer office. It's really, I think going to be producing, it is already, and it's going to continue producing some real interesting experiments at universities. And I'm excited to see how that grows. And then different size universities can try different things. You know, I think that we've been fortunate to try all kinds of new things in just our 10 years of existence. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You mentioned angel investors earlier, still a nascent thing in in Alaska. You were director of the Alaska Angel Conference, though, last year, 2020-2021. Can you tell me about this event and how it has helped Alaska?
1: Sure, yeah. So this is very much related to building up that ecosystem You know, I work on the innovation side of it, and then there's the founder entrepreneur side of it, and then there's the investor side of it. This is focused on building up the investor side of the ecosystem. So what we do, it's an annual event. It's called an Alaska Angel Conference, but it's actually something that takes place over the course of, say, two or three months. We attract the startup companies that are raising capital or as many as we can in the state at the time, and then angel investors. And we really try to get new angel investors in the state. And they all buy a unit or two of a fund. We usually raise about $100,000. And then it's really a teaching process. So there's some experienced angel investors, and then there's all the new angel investors. And experienced angel investors walk the new angel investors through the process of finding and then doing due diligence and then making a decision and then actually executing an agreement to invest in the startup companies. So It's literally Tuesday night, four to 6pm or something, webinar teaching new aspect of angel investing, maybe for the first hour and then the second hour is hearing pitches from the startup companies or talking to the startup companies, asking questions that you would ask during due diligence and the investors break up into smaller teams to really do the thorough due diligence and then report back to the larger group of investors and then at the end, make a decision. And then we find that sidecar deals get done. I think every year there's been a sidecar deal that's gotten done. It still is a service to the startups because we make sure we really try to provide value to them as well. I mean, at minimum feedback on their pitches, but we also provide pitch workshops for them. So it's an organizing force for startups and investors in the state of Alaska, and it results in a real investment. It's a great model. We actually imported it from something similar in
0: Pacific Northwest. Okay. Yeah, because the other one that I was thinking of was... The IU Angel Network, Indiana University, because they do something similar where they bring in investors and they do the due diligence and they, well, I suppose it really helps startups to go through due diligence because they might see things that are not quite working yet the way they should. And But yeah, that's the other one that came to mind.
1: That seems to be increasingly common. I think Duke has one as well and some other schools do too. They're organizing their angel investors and they're not necessarily doing it. You know, there's a lot of benefits. It helps them connect to often their alumni who they're bringing in. So, in their alumni can contribute as entrepreneurs and residents, or executive in residence. They can contribute philanthropically to the university. They can invest in the startup company. They might end up taking some other technology and commercializing that. So, that's that mentor, network building type function. There's a lot of benefits to that.
0: You personally, you joined UAF in 2015. You became director last year. As you said, your background is in law. You've been a public defender, a planning commissioner, patent attorney. What got you into tech transfer and what made you join Alaska in particular?
1: So this field is full of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. You've got the PhDs and JDs and those are just credentials, but people from all different areas of science. And you can be, you know, a sociologist. There's an add value to everybody there. It's just such a interesting and dynamic group of people. It's got to be one of the most diverse professions that i could think of you can come from just about any background and there's so many different aspects to tech transfer and you can stick with tech transfer as a career or use this as a springboard and the people working in tech transfer are some of the most well-rounded people i've met i'd really encourage anybody and everybody to give it a try for a while especially if they're interested in technology and
0: you know making a real impact Yeah. It's every time I speak to someone, I think I should do it. And my predecessor actually did. He now works for Oxford University Innovation. So he has managed to jump into a TTO. But yeah, it just sounds amazing. Every time I speak to someone, it's a wonderful career. It is so interesting. You know, I'm always, especially at a
1: university that does a wide range of things. You know, you might work at a cancer institute where it's still many different aspects of the research going on, but it's still biomedical and cancer, biomedical at that. I'm dealing with the whole range of stuff. We don't have a medical school, but we still even have biomedical research going on here. It's so interesting if you're into science and technology. And then there's the business side of things too, which is really interesting.
0: What is your vision for tech transfer at UAF? What does this look like in 5-10 years? So with some other leaders at UAF, we are actually transforming
1: the university into a more innovative research institute that's more closely aligned with some real world needs. And from there, everything's going to flow of more disclosures and disclosures that are more valuable and greater economic impact and greater impact of the university's research. So my vision is heavily focused on the innovation side of things. That's my vision for it. And that's what I'm working toward. And from there, the tech transfer operations and output metrics will be greater. There's just a lot of different angles to take there. There's grad students and connecting to corporations and real world needs and design thinking and the lean startup methodology. There's all these different pieces that can and are contributing to that. And then talking to faculty about what they're teaching in their classes and saying, hey, you know, you thought about this and having them go through some of our program. They're like, oh, this is pretty interesting. I could bring this back to my classroom. So really transforming the innovation ecosystem at the university and then
0: tech transfer will follow from there, will be more successful as a result. Is there anything that annoys you that if you had a magic wand, you could change at UAF or tech transfer in general?
1: <laughs> Let's see. I'm um, not sure if you've heard of, there's this initiative in the United States called PTIE or P-T-I-E. It stands for the Promotion and Tenure in Innovation and Entrepreneurialism. But essentially it's a coalition of 100 universities in the country that are trying to build innovation and entrepreneurialism into the promotion and tenure criteria or elevate it within the criteria. So either it's not already in the criteria. So talking about faculty and what motivates them, what they get measured by. Many schools think nothing of innovation and entrepreneurialism, or some schools have it listed, but don't really put much value on it. That can really shift things on a large scale, I think, if we elevate that. Within the promotion and tenure criteria, this is a factor. It's not a criteria. It's not the right thing for a large percentage of PIs, but it's something that for the ones who are interested, they should get credit for. It's something we've been pushing within UAF and something I think that could make a big impact across the country. So elevating the importance of innovation and entrepreneurialism for promotion and tenure review for
0: faculty members, I think could be a pretty big deal. Mm. There's others that I've talked to this. I know in, um, KU Leuven in Belgium, they have one where researchers, even if they don't create the spin-out, if they license the technology, they get their pot of money from the licensing income. And then they can use that to hire teaching assistants or spend it on resources. And that way, they kind of build an entrepreneurial culture. So even if there isn't a startup that is created, they have their... And obviously, the money belongs to the university. It doesn't belong to the professor. But it's a way for the professor to kind of go, oh, I've done something that has had commercial value and now i have a very clear thing that i can use and i thought that was quite interesting way of of handling it
1: a lot of schools do have something like that in the united states as well and they'll give the money directly we even give some of the money directly into their paycheck or it's a separate check that they'll get if we have success in commercializing it is there to incentivize gearing your research toward commercial potential and then some of the money that stays within the university will still go back to the department so that not only does the inventor, him or herself, get it directly into their paycheck, but they also might get some into their lab. It usually goes above their level and then their dean or the director gets to decide what to do with it and probably varies by department or by university whether they get funnels down to that individual or if it stays up at a higher level. Yeah.
0: I learned something new.
1: <laughs> but is it adequate to incentivize? In some places it is, in some places it isn't. And it really helps if you've had a, you know, we talk about the faculty member who will someday drive onto campus with a Porsche, which is a very unreasonable car to own in Alaska. So that might not ever happen, but you get the point. Somebody who drives onto campus with a Porsche, the red flashy convertible Porsche, and all the other faculty members are like, oh, I want one of those. And that might be the thing that really changes it. So awaiting that day. Metaphorical Porsche. I don't know what it would be. Yeah. Or
0: <laughs> I don't know what's appropriate in Alaska. Probably more like a Land Rover. What would you say to someone starting out in tech transfer today? What advice would you give to a fresh start?
1: I would encourage someone who's just starting out in tech transfer to enjoy the learning process and learn as much as you can, and be very open-minded, and don't be. Too patient. There's so much opportunity out there. If you find that you're getting bogged down in an area that you don't like or pigeonholed in a way that you don't like, there's opportunity to move around and go after it. And there's plenty of room for leadership still in figuring out what tech transfer is going to look like in the future broadly or should look like at a particular research institute. So, There's plenty of opportunity, so don't let yourself get discouraged by any particular bad experience you might have, and don't be too patient, because if you find that you're not learning something new, then stand up and say, I want to keep on going with my personal professional development.
0: I think that's really good advice. I really like that. Don't be too patient. That's a good slogan.
1: (laughs) I told that to a group of, I think, undergraduate students recently with some faculty members in the room, and I was like, if you don't like your degree, what your major is, you just need to change. And if you need to change five times, then change. But you'll learn something each time you switch. And I maybe said it a little more politely than that. But, I, you know, I, I think that there's so much value, you know, go learn, go try new things. And I don't want to see um some students get stuck in a certain area and then find out that they don't like it further down the
0: road. I think that's very true. I started a postgrad and then changed my mind two months in because I realized it just wasn't for me and did a different one. And yeah, I think there shouldn't be any shame in realizing that the path you chose is not the right one. We've touched a lot on startups, problems, money. Are there any successes that have come out of UAF that you are proud of, or that you would highlight for whatever reason? So
1: I'm proud of every one of our startups at this point. They are trailblazing in a sincere sense in that you know, I think our first startup was about seven, eight years ago, what you'd call a modern day real startup coming out of the university. There have been companies over probably the past 80 years or something, but they're not really what you call the modern university spinoff. And since then, it's just increasing every year. They truly are trailblazers. You know, the very first ones are helping us work through conflict of interest management plans for the first time and We're refining our licensing processes. And then they're figuring out in-state venture financing, attracting money and capital for their startups. A couple that have full-time faculty members who have taken it seriously and done a great job. We've got Dr. Drew, who started a company called Be Cool, that's working on developing a pharmaceutical, which is hard to believe in Alaska. There's not a med school, not even a big biology department. Interestingly, it's actually based on decades of hibernation research. So it's quite fitting for us to have this particular type of pharmaceutical. And then there's another researcher, Dr. Johnson and his company, Kupai, also Alaska related. After his own decades of research on interaction of ice crystals and snow particles, had developed great models for modeling the interaction between particles using the discrete element method, its particular type of modeling, and has developed some really high-level modeling software that he's turned into a good business.
0: Wow. Pharmaceutical was definitely not something that I thought you were <laughs> going to say. so That's really cool. That almost brings us to the end. We're almost out of time. Is there anything else we haven't covered that you want people to know about UAF or any parting words? UAF is open for business. We've got great researchers
1: to collaborate with. We've got great technology that's available for licensing. This is an exciting time to be working in tech transfer for anybody who's considering it. And it's exciting time to be living in this world. So I just see opportunity everywhere around me right now. I'm not sure if it has something to do with hopefully coming on the heels of a pandemic. Hopefully that's coming to an end, but I just feel like there's just a ton of opportunity in alaska at uaf and just it seems like everywhere everybody i'm talking to right now it's a really exciting time so i hope that everybody has a great attitude and can contribute
0: to making the world better well you certainly convinced me to come visit alaska as soon as i can mark thank you so much it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today and learn more about alaska likewise
1: this is great i really enjoy your podcast so please keep it up
0: beyond the breakthrough is hosted by me TiE Halas. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia limited publication. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university. You can follow us on LinkedIn at Global University Venturing. And you can reach me directly at theles@globalventuring.com. at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. I'd love to hear from you with feedback, comments, or if you would like to be a guest on a future episode. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or recommend us to your colleagues. Thank you very much to those of you that have already done so. We will be back next Friday when I will be talking to Kelly Rich, the Interim VP and Associate Provost for Innovation at the University of Notre Dame's Idea Center. Here is a little preview of that conversation. So what we've done is we've kind of flipped that
1: model on its head and say, instead of organizing by industry, we're gonna organize by process, right? So we have somebody who just works with faculty and researchers on engagement, making sure that they appropriately disclose the invention at the right time. And then we have another team who only focuses on the business opportunity assessment, a team that does the technical and market de-risking and then a separate group who does the enterprise acceleration. I think that's a very robust model for us, and it really paid off in terms of our ability to accelerate the path to market for these lab inventions.